Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. Nice to see you guys through the screen. How's it going? Uh, it's going Hang, okay. Hanging in. Yeah, I, uh, I wanted to just provide a small update. Uh, one of my uh, quarantine binge-watching uh, odysseys has been, um, I'm about halfway through Sex in the City right now. Sure. I love uh, this for you. Which I've never seen. Um, my wife has seen it, and now we are watching it together. And uh, you know, I'm I'm enjoying myself generally, but I bring it up now because I I just wanted to shout out what it is quickly becoming one of my favorite TV lawyers, Miranda Hobbs. Oh sure, yeah, this she's is, great. Uh, this is this is this is this is great work by 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 Cynthia Nixon, who played a lawyer on TV and then tried to be. Was it? I've already forgotten. Was she running for governor or mayor? Governor. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, she plays Miranda. Love Miranda. Uh, some kind of Alex, vague corporate so lawyer. It's not really explained what she does specifically. You, Alex, are yeah. you a Miranda, or are you? Do you identify more with uh, one of the other girls? I mean, I. My wife explained it to me this way that the 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 idea of being one Sex in the City character is sort of a misnomer. It's like, it's more like a. Uh, uh, like a zodiac thing, it right? Is. Where it's right. like, oh, I'm, right. I'm a Miranda, but I'm Charlotte Rising or something like that. Yes, um, that's at least totally so. True. At least maybe that you know maybe, that you're yeah, maybe it's that you're a you're a Slytherin. Um, so we all know that. Yes, we've got right. that down. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's what's going on on my end. I I think that's great. I think we're all digging into uh, various binge watches of old stuff. I'm doing The Wire. It's great. been a challenge. Oh, yeah. I'm finally getting to that, and um, there's some other people watching it at work, and uh, I find it very slow. It's very slow. Bad takes. Bad takes all around. I know. I know. That's what everybody tells I mean, it me. Is. I've been chastised I about mean, my takes on this, one that I should love it more. It? It's hard to love it a lot when it's slow, guys. I'm going to sue you over your opinion, and then we're going to talk about it on Pro Se, our podcast. <laughs> yeah. About Trust. the law. Well, I'm only... I'm only like five episodes into season two, so give me some time to get through the rest of it, and then we'll circle back to this. Uh, yeah, yeah, we should we should revisit this take when this is fully fleshed out. But what are we talking about today? I was going to say before we get too deep into our TV takes, uh, yeah, we're going to we be here forever doing that. Uh, we had a really great Amber and I had a really great chat with uh, RJ Vote, our uh, access to justice reporter, about some of the impending sort of Orwellian privacy problems that are going to come out of trying to sure. trace people and uh, deal with COVID in any sort of reasonable way. So uh, very interesting chat. Stay tuned for that. Um, but before then, uh, I think, Alex, you want to kick us off? Yeah. Um, this is uh, this is another sort of COVID-adjacent litigation story. Um, I remember when we did our last episode in the studio, um, uh, which was, I guess, like six or seven weeks ago at this point. In we the talked about times. the sort of yeah, in the in the before time, as we all know it. We talked about sort of like the different flexibilities that legal professionals were giving one another, you know, as 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 they dealt with this sort of creeping threat, and that it was only a matter of time before some of before there were accusations of sort of using the of using the virus, um, you know, sort of 
in in bad faith as you you know navigate legal waters. But anyway, all of that is 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 prelude to say that. We have got a real mess on our hands in Manhattan federal court. Uh, last week, this legal services company um, sued uh, one of its former employees, uh, uh, accusing this guy of blackmailing uh, and basically extorting both Wilmer Hale and Toyota for nearly half a million dollars over this project that he was working on that got canceled in the wake of the of the coronavirus outbreak. Wow, I mean, blackmail and extortion, it sounds... We got it all. Toyota. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it does sound exciting, though. We don't always talk about something like that. What? Let's let's get into some of the allegations. What are they saying happened? Yeah, so this is is a little bit confusing. Please tell me if I get too far afield here, but we'll start with some of the basics. The principal sort of parties here are this legal services company that is known as HC2. They go by higher counsel, but they're they're they're, they're but their name is HC2. Uh, and they have sued one of their former employees, this man named Andrew Delaney. Uh, the company sued Delaney, basically saying that he tried to extort some of its clients after this sort of document review project that he was working on got abandoned after the coronavirus outbreak. This company does, they, they do various legal services. One of them is document review. You know, some, some, some of these companies do like witness prep or things like that. So they sort of, law firms use these companies to help them with sort of more menial parts of, of the legal profession. Um, the company's suit does not name the clients that are, that are subject to this alleged extortion threat, but... Delaney himself told our own Frank Runyon, our our trusty Manhattan court reporter, that uh, the project was being done for Wilmer Hale and uh, the firm's client, Toyota. So here's what both sides basically agree on. Delaney was employed at HC2, and he's working on this document review project. Um, Around March of this year, he raises concerns that people start showing up to the Wilmer Hale office with flu-like symptoms, and he basically asks the firm if this work can be done remotely. Soon after that, Wilmer Hale completely pulls the the plug on the project altogether um, and just shuts the whole thing down. Um, Delaney views this basically as retaliation for raising concerns about Wilmer Hale's work environment um, and basically saying that they were not taking the virus seriously enough as it was spreading. But where does um, where does the extortion and the blackmail and all that stuff come in? Uh, yes. Uh, so here is where the narratives diverge a little bit. But according to the suit, and again, this suit was filed by HC2 against Delaney. They say that Delaney... Um, basically, after the after this project was canceled, uh, demanded about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in compensation from Wilmer Hale and, by extension, Toyota, um, along with a threat to release sort of sensitive private information about Toyota through the filing of a lawsuit. Um, if if that payment was not made, uh, the firm and the company basically deny that request. Later, uh, this uh, a lawsuit along the lines of what Delaney had described is filed in Florida State Court. It's a John Doe lawsuit, um, and it's soon placed under seal. Uh, Delaney did not confirm whether or not he filed that suit, but we'll get back to that in a second. Basically, what you need to know is that HC2 views this $450,000 request as extortion. He's saying that, uh, you know... This guy Delaney is saying we will we will we will I I will release this very sensitive information that I have been privy to reviewing these documents about Toyota if you don't pay me uh, this money. 
Delaney uh, told, again, told Frank, uh, our guy Frank, that he was basically just viewing it as, um, a, a, the, the exact quote was, exercising my right under the whistleblower statute in New York State. He's not engaging in extortion. Now, it's difficult for us to parse exactly how valid this this claim that he's doing whistleblower activity is because we don't know what's in these documents, which is kind of at the center of this entire thing. There was this, you know, lawsuit filed that claimed to, you know, put these documents out in the open. The company views this as extortion. Delaney says he's just asking for remuneration for this uh, project that was put on hold. Well, and it's no surprise that that they sued, right? Because the the idea of these litigation these various companies that service uh you know litigation e-discovery yeah. uh you know doc review all these different companies that are involved one of the most important things they have is the 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 reputation that stuff like this will not happen when you when a firm hires them that they are dealing Definitely. constantly with with very sensitive information so it it doesn't shock me that that this company would immediately view this as something of an existential threat yeah, I mean, there there are lots of firms, like you said, and Wilmer Hale is a, is a major player, and for 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 firms of that stature to rely on other companies like this, if these if employees are as alleged here, just going to sort of go rogue and and make you know demands of you under threat of some other disclosure, it's obviously a very serious thing. Yeah. So where are we now with the suit? It seems like what you laid out was some early stages of both sides expressing why they think they're in the right. Yeah. Um, so the judge that's overseeing this has uh, uh, the the I I should remark the the suit was filed last week. This week we had a hearing um, where the judge uh, in New York sort of is trying to clear the deck a little bit and and make and and just you know clean this up a little bit. For one thing, um, this Florida John Doe complaint that I said that sort of has these. Uh, these sort of private Toyota docs embedded within it um, has been dismissed. Um, Delaney himself never did confirm whether he was the one who filed it, but it was his attorney at this New York hearing who repeatedly sort of said, this has been dismissed. We don't have to worry about this anymore. So take, take that for what you will. Um, more to the point though, um, the judge put a gag order uh, on Delaney this week Um uh, he basically referenced. I, I'm, I'm always loath to sort of cite to our own thing as like a, like a factor in an active case unless we absolutely have to. But he did mention Frank's story, and uh, the judge said he was quote troubled by reading about the disclosure of Wilmer Hale and Toyota in the press. Um, so I mean, he said he basically put a gag order on Delaney. Says, do not discuss this with the press or with anybody else outside your legal team sort of for the time being. Um, but yeah, it's obviously a very interesting thing. And as, as, as Bill mentioned, this is the type of stuff that these are the type of tasks that big law firms often farm out to companies like this. And, you know, you throw in some sort of COVID chaos into the mix and uh, stuff like this uh, can and apparently has happened. Uh, certainly a lot on the judge's plate here. Uh, and we'll see uh, what comes out as the case moves ahead. Okay, well, we're going to jump from uh, Manhattan Federal Court all the way up to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court for our second story this week. It's um, I'm familiar with them. It's, uh, ever heard of them? Um, yes. Very, very, very prominent jurists. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of my stories. It's a copyright story. Um, it's about uh, a ruling this week uh, on a very interesting case about whether... Uh, state and local governments can charge people for access to legal texts. Um, 
it's it's interesting for all sorts of reasons but but it, it was it saw the, it was there was very interesting writing from the chief justice who wrote the opinion about you know the sort of dire warnings about what this case might have led to if it had gone a different way and about you know economy mm-hmm. class and first class access to to the legal system and and he even mentioned something like a paper law system so it's it's just um uh it's it's a very interesting uh, look at the way that that you know the the government can and can't sort of restrict access to to legal texts well let's start right there what kind of legal texts are we talking about here sort of put us in the the ballpark of the framework of what they had to decide so you guys might not know this but um there georgia and and more than 20 other states uh claim copyrights to what are known as annotated versions of their state legal codes it's you know they claim the same right that a that a book publisher or a movie studio or whatever claims to a creative work they claim to this annotated version of of the state legal code um so th- you know a simple text of the code you know you know uh, section section 8375 you know that says like you know that this law that's online that's free those the actual text of the law is free online but the state mm-hmm. then creates this official annotated version that features mostly summaries of court rulings on how the law has been applied in courts and sort of then thus you know, actually works um, and other supplemental info um, opinions by the state attorney general, by regulatory agencies, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the free, ver- the really simple version is free. But then for that annotated version that really tells you how the law actually works, users must pay hundreds of dollars, at least in, ter- in terms of the, the Georgia code that we're talking about here. Yeah, this is it's interesting because I mean, as you ably laid out, like it's it's this is a it's a it's a cop it's a story about copywriting legal texts, but it's more to the point. It's about how easily you know just regular workaday folks can access the legal system and comprehend the laws that you know govern their lives. Um, and it's just uh, it's fascinating to think about. Like, like we'll, we'll talk about some of the different ramifications, but just can you explain sort of the the, the legal principles behind the idea of trying to copyright sort of laws and the sort of public public interpretations of those laws. Yeah, so it's super interesting, right? Like the 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 baseline here is that no, you can't. They can't. The government cannot copyright the law itself. Right. Like the okay. the actual codes themselves are. No one is arguing that that can be can be copyrighted and restricted. The Supreme Court has held for 150 years that there's that those are known as government edicts. Um, that, okay. that that copyright doesn't cover for pretty self-evident reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, of course you want people to get access to that and know what the law is. Exactly, people are bound by by that. They have to know what they are. You shouldn't have to pay to read them. Um, but so but the, where you get into a murkier territory when you get into supplemental info like this, where it's not the binding law. The binding law is the binding law. The text of the law is yeah. out there and it's free. But this was authored by lawmakers in their official capacity. It was voted on. It was it was in, it was incorporated into the official code of the state. So it is what the state is telling you is the way that the law works. And it's not the binding text of the statutes themselves, but it, it blurs toward where the where the law is. So in 2016, um, uh, a, a group called Public Resource um, took these these 
uh, the, the, the Georgia annotations and they copied them and they published them online for free. They're an activist group. They did this specifically to be sued by the state yeah. of Georgia mm-hmm. to, to sort of force the issue. And that's exactly what happened. And that sort of set us on the on the path toward um, the Supreme Court ruling that we got on Monday. OK, so the court gets the case, hears it. And how did they come down and how did they they parse this sort of complicated web we're talking about here? So it was it was really interesting. It was um, I mean, ultimately, the court said that Georgia cannot copyright these texts, that the annotations themselves are government edicts that that are not subject to copyright law. Um, to get there, they grappled with these really interesting sort of, uh, you know, this this complex choice. Right. Like, was it more important that the text itself had the force of law? What we were just talking mm-hmm. about before of like, you know, it's not the actual statute. It's something close to it, whatever. Or was it more important that it was written by lawmakers who themselves should not be able to claim a copyright? It's sort of in the weeds there, and they settled on the latter option, which was this sort of more broadly prohibited states from doing this kind of thing. Um, and, And they said, look, if it's written by a legislator in their official duties as a legislator, it is not copyrightable, full stop. Uh, you know, legislative history, mm-hmm. uh, reports on how the, the the deliberations, all that kind of stuff. It is not copyrightable, and that has to be made free for everyone to use. That does I mean, seem I, like a yeah. cleaner rule, right? It seems like the sure. simpler decision there. It was definitely the simpler of the two, and it was definitely lauded by you know the by by the folks who who were worried about these really sort of sweeping policy problems. That if you if you start allowing states to do this, that that you get into sort of dangerous territory. So they viewed that sort of broader approach as a big victory. Um, I mean, I always say the liner notes are just as important as the actual music. So, I mean, good on them for 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 looking out for that. Um, we've 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 gestured at this a couple of times, but I mean, give us an idea of like what was at stake here if it had gone in a couple other directions. What might we have been looking at? So the uh, the opinion was written by the Chief Justice by John Roberts, and yeah. um, you know, like a like a good conservative jurist that he is, he he found textual support for this. He and he pointed to the to also to to longstanding case law, but but it was interesting the the amount of sort of policy stuff that was in this opinion and the yeah. and you know um the kind of you know when you see it in a brief you call it a, a parade of horribles the the things that you know the the terrible sure. things that might happen and he made a real point to emphasize how you know why why this would have been a, such a big problem if if um states had been if the court had had sided with George's uh you know arguments here he warned of, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of first class and economy class access to these laws. At one point, yeah. he listed off a bunch of different aspects of Georgia's state code that are still on the books. If you read the simple code itself, they are they are in the text of the code, including things that sound incredibly antiquated in terms of like criminal penalties for for various uh, consensual sexual conduct things like things that have been struck down and are no longer good law but they're still part of this and he he was doing that to make the point that if you are part of this economy class group that only has access to the basic thing you are you, you wouldn't know any of that stuff all that stuff is written into the annotated version that says oh in 1998 the supreme court of georgia struck this down you wouldn't yeah. have any access to that it would be so you start moving toward this situation where you know the wealthy and or or a, a you know the people who have more means are able to get 
a better version, a more accurate version of the law that covers everyone. And that's a pretty scary sort of dystopian kind of kind of thing. The quote from Roberts was, quote, if everything short of statutes and opinions were copyrightable, then states would be free to offer a whole range of premium legal works for those who can afford the extra benefit. With today's digital tools, states might even launch a subscription or pay per law service. So Netflix for laws. Yeah. Sounds so, weird. It's it's um uh but I mean that was the scenario that was avoided. And there are, you know, there yeah. are as as with anything that the Supreme Court does, there are you know, it gave answers, but it opened up new answers. Can states farm this out completely to private groups that then write these things and then the state later adopts them themselves as, you know, binding or official or whatever? Um, there are plenty of different ways that this could, you know, that, that we could still see states try to um, recoup some some money here, which is, we should say, which was the argument for these states that they say, you know, this affords us, we don't have a whole lot of money to, to be it's creating a these. Exactly, mm-hmm. that this allows us to yeah. sort of efficiently do this in our, um, in our own way. Um, so what we see in the future in terms of states trying to continue to generate revenue to do that kind of thing, we'll see. But clearly, um, we avoided what, what at least the, the Chief Justice and, and four of his colleagues believed was a pretty uh, pretty scary situation. After weeks of social distancing, experts say widespread public health surveillance is the next stage of America's COVID-19 pandemic response. But does that mean Americans will have to give up privacy for their safety? And are court battles about that on the horizon? Here to discuss is reporter RJ Vote. Welcome back to the show, RJ. Hey, I'm really glad to be here, Amber. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's nice to see you, even if we're all spread out as always these days. Um, and that actually kind of leads us into the topic we have you on to talk about, which is we've been in this stage of social social distancing that's worked in some places, but we can't do this forever. So what do we do to move past that? What are the next steps that public health officials say we need to do so we can all leave our houses? So the the big next step, you know, right now we've been in this period of mitigation where we couldn't contain the virus. So we just said everybody stay at home and, and hopefully nobody will get it. And now we're going to move into this phase of containment. And a big part of containment is surveillance. You're seeing it in a couple of different ways starting to be rolled out. I don't know if you've heard about the drones that have been deployed in some countries like India and Australia, and even here in the U.S. and Florida and Connecticut, these drones can monitor crowd sizes and some are even equipped with temperature sensors so they can see if it seems like a place where there's a lot of contagion. Another idea has been ankle bracelets. Um, Some judges in West Virginia and Kentucky have authorized the government to literally strap a bracelet on somebody who's maybe tested positive, but is refusing to quarantine, um, to enforce that quarantine that they're considering using ankle bracelets. And, and then the third key surveillance measure that's being talked about the most and might be the most helpful, but also the most scary is this idea of phone data. The idea that we could track and trace everybody who gets the disease and maybe passes it on to somebody else by tracking where their phones have been. So we're going to get into in a, in a minute some of the, uh, you know, the legal, the, the, the problematic aspects of some of this. But before we do, can you I mean, 
Is there a sense that will this stuff work? I mean, are there are other, are other countries already doing this? I mean, does it? you know, even how does this work? I mean, is it done by the telecom companies? Is it done by the government? Sort of walk us through, you know, how effective this stuff might be. Sure. So, you know, the country to really look at here, I think, is South Korea. They've had a really interesting phone-based contact tracing program. And basically what happens is somebody comes in and they test positive and the government, uh, you know, the healthcare operator interviews them about where they've been in the last two weeks. And then the government is actually publishing all of that information online so it's freely available so you can go online and you know let's say bill donahue tested positive you can go on and see where bill donahue has been for the last two weeks the crazy part is because it's all free and publicly available app developers have put it onto maps so you can go online and you can look at a map of your hometown and see oh bill donahue was at the grocery store i shop at four days ago or a day ago or today and um you know, this will allow people who think, oh, I was at that grocery store too. Maybe I I got it from something he or she touched. And so you go and get yourself tested and that will allow the, the disease to be contained. And South Korea has done a better job than the US of containing the spread of the infection. They haven't had to shut down their economy. Um, and, you know, it, it's generally been considered a success, at least compared to the mitigation strategies we've done in the US. I mean, I would like to eventually leave my house. So the promise of something that could help us do that contact tracing and mean that more of us can go out and sort of live a semi-normal life is really appealing. But on the flip side, it does seem like you're giving up a lot there. I mean, somebody would know exactly where you've been. Um, You know, anytime you trace people's movements, that always seems to lead to some nefarious outcomes of people misusing that data. Right. And I mean, that's one of the things that South Korea has tried to prevent a a total loss of privacy. They don't put out your name, but they do put out your age, your gender, where you live, the names of the businesses and apartment complexes you visited. So, you know, as a result, some of your intimate information is out there where you worship, who you've been visiting, what you do when you think nobody else is watching. All of that could become public. And that's what really is freaking out the civil liberties groups who are concerned Yeah, I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, they might not put out your name, but depending on where you live, it's one thing to just have, you know, white female 40 in New York. It's a whole different thing if you're in a smaller town or somewhere where people could pretty easily identify who's who. Right, exactly. What if you're a minority and, you know, that information could be enough to to identify you? And that's a concern, this idea that um, there's going to be a surveillance creep. So once the government starts collecting this information and, you know, they're publicizing it in South Korea, but the fear is if they started doing it in the U.S., that it would actually not be publicized and that it would continue beyond the pandemic and that we'd be living in this state of the government collecting information on our movements for time infinity. Yeah, I mean, I think you used the term Orwellian in your story and it's... (laughs) You know, it's just you hear these systems and and yes, it sounds like something where, you know, this could be a step forward toward this. But but, you know, anyone with any grounding in civil liberties, just your your brain starts spinning when you hear these things where you're like, oh, my God, there are just so many different ways that this could could cause problems. That's that's a great point, Bill. And and one of the problems that the ACLU raised is we don't even have a guarantee that these phone apps are accurate enough to know if you've really been within six feet of somebody who was infected. That's, you know, the generally accepted zone of contagion. And GPS 
phone location, it, it's, it can be wrong up to you know, 30, 40 feet. Some companies are talking about using Bluetooth, which can be more accurate, but there's still not enough data and proof out there that they're going to accurately identify who you, you know, what phones your phone has been in contact with. And the other thing is people are concerned about, you know, the idea in South Korea is if you were contacted by one of these infected people, you isolate yourself. Well, what if you live in a cramped public housing complex and they identify somebody on floor 14 as having had an infection? Does everybody in that housing complex have to quarantine? You know, is it right. going to work vertically as well as it does horizontally? And if that's the case, could this lead to marginalization of certain groups of people? You know, we're seeing communities of color are getting hit the worst. So could we end up in a situation where those communities are being ordered to isolate and other communities aren't? So you're on a podcast that's um, all about the law. So I have to get to the question we always do, which is, are some of these civil liberties groups going to sue? I mean, it seems like we're getting really close to um, the kind of privacy concerns that they would bring to court. Sure. So every expert I spoke to cautioned that it will all depend on the nature of the surveillance. But the the general consensus was there's going to be suits to come. There's this thing called the Fourth Amendment. It protects people against unlawful search and seizure. And if people are willing to sue over not being allowed to have church in parking lots spaced out in their cars, they're definitely going to sue over potentially being tracked on their phones. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, when you start looking into the case law, it, it, there's a, it's not really resolved in terms of what the government can collect. Can the government force you to download an app? Can the government compel your phone company to turn over data? That actually I was mean, answered kind of in 2018. There was a Supreme Court case and they said the, the government can't seize a week's worth of your phone location data. This was in a criminal case where they used it to convict somebody. Uh, so that, But they didn't really explain why you can't do that. They didn't get into the third party doctrine that much. Well, and RJ, did they even consider that there may be more latitude for the government in a situation like we're in now where it's a pandemic? It seems like the government certainly has extra powers over the public in the interests of health, health and safety. Absolutely. And, and that's what I kept hearing is although core challenges will likely follow, the judiciary is likely to side with the government during an, an emergency. There's this crazy precedent I'd never heard about from 100 years ago. It was 1905. Jacobson versus Massachusetts, they said that it's okay to force people to get a vaccination against smallpox. Um, in, that in that opinion, they basically said rights aren't absolute, especially during a crisis. So although you might have the right to be free from search and seizure, in an emergency, the government can you know, jam that vaccination needle into you if they, if they feel like they need to. And if they can do that, then it, the thinking is they probably can take your phone data. Well, let's talk a little bit more about who will actually have this data? Because I know we don't, we're talking sort of in the abstract about what this might look like and looking to South Korea for examples, but we don't really have a full plan in place in the US yet, right? And who could be involved? I mean, it seems like there's big data companies, but also the government. Do you have any contours about how this might take shape? That's one of the frustrating things right now is there hasn't been a ton of transparency. Um, we know that Apple and Google have announced this joint venture where they're going to make the iPhone system and the Android systems compatible for like public health data sharing. And there's also been widespread reports that Jared Kushner, a senior advisor and Trump's son-in-law, uh, he's been reaching out to some healthcare companies and some tech companies to try to start organizing some kind of cohesive surveillance plan. The problem is we're not equipped for this. In South Korea, they had 
SARS and they had MERS and, and they, they had to deal with these issues 10, 15 years ago. And they actually have a law that says we're allowed to use credit card data and security camera footage and phone data if we need to in a public health emergency. We just don't have that kind of infrastructure. And it's been interesting to see some legislators actually reach out to the White House and say, what are the companies you're talking to? Is there going to be some kind of guaranteed end date to data collection? When is data collection even going to start? They asked all these questions. The White House hasn't responded. It's such an interesting problem, right, to to be trying to anticipate what the challenges will be to a system that we don't yet know what it will look like that there's this sense that 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 to tackle this problem you will have to come up with some amorphous solution that that almost certainly will raise all sorts of of uh, uh, constitutional issues but we don't have any idea what that exactly will look like so how do you sort of plan for for you know making sure that it that it doesn't go too far that it doesn't collect too much data it's a it's a super interesting sort of chicken and egg kind of kind of problem well, RJ, are people planning for that? I mean, it seems like certainly people are aware of the issues. So at least are there groups or a subset of lawmakers or somebody out there that's saying like, hey, while you're in the design phase, how about you try this to just try to alleviate some of these privacy problems? Absolutely. Uh, there were two law professors that wrote a really interesting op-ed in The Hill a couple of weeks ago calling for a digital right to self-defense to be passed into law either at the state level or the federal level. And this would basically allow people to evade surveillance via VPNs and other digital tools so if that so that if they don't want their location to be tracked as part of the public health response, that they could not be tracked. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if that actually gains any traction. Another idea has been to have sunset clauses. So if some kind of surveillance system is created that it would have a clear end date that would prevent the surveillance creep that people are most worried about. And I think the biggest lesson to draw from South Korea is just the transparency. I think one of the reasons it's working there is because the government literally just publishes everything that they're doing online and it's, you know, open software so people can take it and map it onto apps. And the people in South Korea have actually been calling for more disclosure of information on who's been infected and where they've been. Um, if that had been all, been all been going on in the dark, it's easy to imagine that people wouldn't have reacted as positively. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how this shapes up because I would like to leave my house someday. So it seems like we're inching toward one of these kinds of solutions. Um, thanks a lot for explaining all of this to us, RJ. Yeah, sure. No problem. I hope to see you guys in real life sometime soon. Yeah, us too. <laughs> thanks, man. show is something offbeat and Alex I think you found something good on Twitter to talk about I mean <laughs> there's never I, anything I, good I definitely on I, I definitely would not say I found something good on Twitter uh rarely uh, do you find something good on no, Twitter. notable De yeah right so, notable. That's something true. notable on Twitter um there I was idly scrolling Twitter like I do every day um and I saw I uh, wanted to give a heads up to Cleveland.com court reporter Eric Heisig who flagged this um the look 
I'm a legal reporter. That's what I do. If you asked me, if you had asked me this morning to tell you who the attorney general of Ohio was, I'm not sure I could have been able to tell you. Um, anyway, he's a man named Dave Yost, and he put on put out on Twitter today um, a uh, uh, a profoundly strange recording. Um, as the state sort of creeps towards a reopening effort from the coronavirus lockdown, um, in addition to being the Attorney General of Ohio, Dave Yost fancies himself as something of a musician. And he um, sort of danced on the graves of Leonard Skinnerd uh, to give us something. Just, just play it, Steve. And I know you don't owe me, but I wish you would let me. Okay, that's that. You know, that I, song is that, like that's listening plenty. to Schoolhouse Rock during a bad acid trip. I <laughs> I want to get off. I want to get off the train. I'm not enjoying myself anymore. I, well, so when you start I think I'm gonna, with a I think not I'm gonna great Leonard Skinner song, yeah, I mean you you start from a bass that's not great to begin with, and then well, layered up Amber, with that. Amber, do you have some kind of bad take quota you you have to hit today? We started with the wire, and now. <laughs> Well, anyway, sorry. Just to in, in in case in case you didn't put it together, that is uh uh that is a cover, a parody, something of the Leonard Skinner song "Gimme Three Steps." Uh, that is entitled "Gimme Six Feet." Um, the the attorney sure. general is describing being out in the world, doing various errands, providing people with appropriate social distancing space. Uh, it's called "Gimme Six Feet." I wish I could go back to a time when I did not know about that. Um, it did. You know, it, like, it, 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 I don't mean to, I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but I think that may be the worst part of this whole thing. The whole, <laughs> the whole crisis. That might be the I worst mean, thing like, that's happened. We're all stuck in our homes. I'm of course, kidding. People are trying to come up with creative outlets. They don't all land. Yeah, but that's what he's trying. Well, yeah. I mean, so when I learned about this, if if it, I mean, and this is not like a a partisan thing or even a thing about politicians. But I was like, if somebody puts stuff, if somebody puts their music on the internet, you can guarantee it's not the first time they've done that. Oh, so that's right. I dove into the archives about uh, uh, Dave Yost here and, tr- and, and dug up some interesting uh, uh, tidbits at the uh, 2012 uh, GOP convention. He, uh, th- this is not uh, any kind of parody or anything. This is just a cover of, um, of Desperado by the Eagles, uh, which he actually uh, dedicated to then-Vice President Joe Biden. Steve, do we have a couple uh, seconds of that? Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? Been out riding fences so long now. I, I never thought the Eagles could be used as a political barb. That's really surprising. Was, hey, now, now that one that one's a little bit better. Uh, I, I will say. I, um, I think I have an OSHA complaint have for, be, from being forced <laughs> to listen to these. I think. 
it's going to get worse. Uh, last one. So there are all kinds of stuff like this. If you Google Dave Yost uh, musical ambitions or whatever, you'll you'll find stuff. So these are both. We so so we have sort of a parody song and a cover song. I would be remiss if we didn't include one of the Attorney General's original compositions. Ooh. Uh, this is a song called. Where Were You, that was played, um, uh, that, that he released in 2016, and I, uh, fr- from nearest I can glean was, was played, I don't know if it was played live or if a tape recording was played, um, but it was, it was played in some form at the 2016 GOP convention. Uh, Steve, let's just make it quick. You can never be like that. Nothing looks so much different Going down this road again Where were you? When they mortgaged off the future Where were you? When they auctioned off the truth Where were you? When they merchandised the innocence of love Where were you? Uh, you know- Look, we've we've set a long precedent on Pro Se of playing little clips of <laughs> you, Alex, and you, Bill, doing karaoke. We've always sort of That's gestured true. that maybe we'd get one of me at some point. We've even sung ourselves on the show. Mm-hmm. We've got a bridge too far. I think mm-hmm. this is the moment where these these singing things have jumped the shark for us. Yeah, I feel broken. Yeah, I mean, and again, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to. We really got to leave it like th- this guy went into politics and he went into the law for a reason. I mean, when these people when when people try and sort of, you know, keep keep their feet in a couple different buckets, bad things happen. Maybe he would have been a better musician if he'd abandoned his legal career. Put it this way. If he were the lead singer of a rock band, you certainly wouldn't want him bringing like, you know, state class actions or or, or, you know, or, sure. or anything like that. Right. So. Just, just, just consider that, Dave. Uh, uh, before we, before we pick up the microphone again. That's, that's, that's all I'll say. Well, it looks like Bill's passed out on this call. I think we probably ought to call the show. I think that'll wrap us up for this week. Um, Bill, you there? Thanks for being with me. Ugh, see you again next week, potentially. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for ringing those songs, Alex. Uh, we had a little fun with them. So glad you brought them. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our guest this week, RJ Vote, and our contributing reporter, Frank Renning. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show. All of our coronavirus coverage is outside of our paywall, so if you want to read more about some of those things we've talked about today, especially RJ's story that we talked about as our main segment, just head over to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.